Hey, this is Dave Ryder from Cullamunda Church of Christ. Really praying this podcast blesses you. If you'd like to hear more of our story, how about you go to our webpage, cullamunda.church. It's Christmas morning. Who's a bit surprised that Christmas came as fast as it did? Anyone else? My goodness. I know most people in New Spring at least. This is my ninth Christmas here at New Spring, so you guys have put up with me for nine years and um, get to share Christmas with the Cullamunda family as well. And um, I know when it comes to New Spring, they love Good Friday and Christmas morning because they get a shorter message. <laughs> um, but for me also, um, Christmas is one of those times where you actually get to feel the artillery of your dad jokes. And yesterday we were um, with Andrea's family and um, we did the old Christmas cracker. Do you like the Christmas crackers? Who likes the Christmas cracker jokes? How many dads love the Christmas cracker jokes? Man, I need them in my life, you know, and um, I was just thinking about those jokes, like, they, they are just incredible. Um, a couple ones from, um, from, from last year, um, which I remember. Um, what did Adam say the day before Christmas? It's Christmas Eve. Oh, come on, that is good. That, I don't care what you that is good. <laughs> Why did no one bid for Rudolph and um, Blitzen on eBay? Because they were too dear. And what says, oh, 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 obviously Santa walking backwards. Come on. <laughs> it is good, right? <laughs> anyway, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to everyone, to your beautiful families. Merry Christmas from the New Spring family, from the Cullamunda family, and also from the Ryder family. It is our great joy and our great delight to host you this morning. And um, if you're not aware, the Ryder family, um, we're a family of four. There's myself, my beautiful, um, stunning wife, Andrea, and there's Kayla, and there is Jackson. Um, there's four of us. Uh, well, actually, there's, there's five if you've ever been to our house. Um, the fifth member of our family is this guy. You'll see him coming up. Um, we have an 11-year-old golden retriever who is beautiful. His name is Oscar, Oscar Ryder. Um, he had a really, really unfortunate um, time when he discovered for the very first time that um, he thought he was the child of the family and then Kayla was born and then he realized he's just a dog. Um, so he's been living with that reality. But Oscar's like this big, if you've ever seen him, he is big, he is huge, he's got this big head. He's beautiful, he is messy, he's sometimes smelly. Actually, he's more often than not smelly, isn't he, um, for those who've been around. But he's also really frustrating. So he's all of these things all at exactly the same time. And the frustration comes when I try to communicate with him. Um, because as you know, dogs don't necessarily understand words when you speak to them. So I do with Oscar what all of us do when it comes to trying to communicate to a dog. I try to help him out by pointing in a certain direction or pointing to a certain object that he should either move towards and actually go and get. And it's actually for his own good. So I do that all the time. But instead, I don't know if your dog's like my dog. Golden retrievers are really pretty, but they're kind of dumb. You know, maybe a border collie might be a bit more smarter. But I know that when I point my finger and say, Oscar, go over there, go fetch over that, he just sits there with his big dopey head, with his big tongue hanging out of the side of his mouth, and he just looks at my finger. Any other dogs do that? And it's so frustrating. Now go there. And he's just <laughs> looking at my finger. It's like, Dad, that's not what I'm trying to do. He cannot comprehend that my finger is actually a sign asking him to actually look and move in a certain direction. And it's so, so frustrating. If anyone wants to invent something, can you please invent something where dogs actually understand what you are saying? Oh, my goodness. If we can go to the moon, surely we can invent that. But I was thinking about it. We're all a little bit like that, aren't we? 
We all like to look at signs, but we don't necessarily look at what those signs are pointing to and pointing towards. And the Christmas story, I don't know if you're so that familiar with it, but the Christmas story actually uses that exact word, sign. There is this sign in the Christmas story that is supposed to grab our attention, shake us to the core, and cause us to look and to move in a certain direction. And you'd honestly think that you and I, I mean, we're pretty sophisticated, we're smart, we're humans. You'd think that we'd have a bit more understanding than a big-headed golden retriever whose name's Oscar Ryder. But the reality is that most people just have a fleeting glance at the sign every now and then. We come to this time of the year and we even hear and sing lyrics every single year. You know, Noel, Noel, come and see what God has done. Noel, Noel, the story of amazing love. The light of the world given for us. No well. And we kind of shrug our shoulders and say, yeah, it's a baby. It's a baby. Or oh, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morning. Yeah, I know. It's a baby. It's a baby. A baby in a manger. But we don't necessarily take the time to look closely at the sign when Scripture says this. The Christmas story, I'm going to read from Luke chapter 2, verse 8 to 12. I'm going to read it in your hearing so you can hear what's been said. And it actually talks about this sign. So listen as I read this. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Saviour, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. There's a sign, you see. The Christmas story talks about a sign. A sign is an object, quality, or event whose presence or occurrence indicates the presence or occurrence of something else. So anytime you see a sign, you look at the sign, but the sign should intrinsically actually just tell us by the mere fact that a sign exists, it is pointing to the existence of something else. That's what a sign is. If you disagree with me, I actually got that definition from the dictionary, not from my own intellect. I'm <laughs> not that smart. But how interesting that the angel, and we use that word angel, but understand in biblical language, angel literally means messenger. So how interesting that the messenger... And by nature of being a messenger, bringing a message from heaven, right? So this is literally a message of heaven. The message says this to you and I, you will recognize him by the sign. You'll recognize him by the sign. A baby? Nothing too significant about that. A baby in swaddling cloths? Oh, nothing really too interesting about that. I mean, Kayla and Jackson, we swaddle them up. A baby who's lying in this huge stone that's been carved out. A feeding trough for animals. Now that's a little bit odd. Well, that's the sign. That's the sign. Matthew, in his rendering and his portrayal of um, Jesus' birth, he actually uses another sign. He actually uses an Old Testament prophecy. Um, and he says this is a prophecy that's over 700 years in the making. He says this, Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. A prophecy which is over 700 years in the making. Says to you and me, look out. Check it out. If you ever see, if you're ever going to see, all right? If you ever see this, a virgin who gives birth to a son, 
If you ever see that, pay attention, that's a sign. Hello. Right? It's pointing us somewhere, you see, these signs. And what does this sign point us to? Well, Luke has actually told us in one single sentence, which I think is so cool. One single sentence. Luke chapter 2, verse 11. This is what the sign points to. The angel, the message from heaven says this. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. The sign points to something. The kicker is that this sign is going to point to something that's really going to confront us. It's really going to shake us. It's going to make us uncomfortable and don't think for a second that, oh, Dave, you're a pastor of a church, so you're all good with this. No, 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 no. Dave Ryder, 41 years old, living in Perth, Western Australia. I am shaken to the core with what this sign points to. It makes me uncomfortable. I'm like everyone else on the face of this planet. Anyone who's paying attention to what this sign points to is going to be shaken to the core because Luke actually says there's some significant things that the sign is pointing to and it literally shakes us up. He's using one sentence because God is pointing his finger in a direction because he wants us to move in a different direction. The first thing which Luke actually says, two words, the Savior, the Savior. Luke 2 verse 11 says the Savior. It starts off with the Savior. Yes, the Messiah. Ralph Stockman said this, the hinge of history is a door of a Bethlehem stable. That is so profound and so much more truer than what we possibly think. That very first holy night, that very first Christmas night is all about the Savior, not just a Savior. And that's kind of important to know because at the time, we've already learned this if you've been part of the journey um, with our churches uh, in December, this story actually begins with articulating and mentioning that there already was a Savior who was in the world. Luke 2 verse 1 says, At the time the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This guy considered himself a Savior of the world. And you don't just take my word for it. We actually literally have um, coins that we've discovered with the imprint of Octavian or Augustus um, Caesar on there. And on those coins it actually says Savior of the world. He literally thought he was Savior of the world. He believed he was saviour of the world. Evidently, the ancient world had no problem believing that the world needed saving and the world needed a saviour. Because the world 2,000 years ago was a desperate, dry, dark, weary, weary place. And there was already a guy who was parading around as a saviour of the world at the very moment when the saviour enters the scene. That was true on the very first Christmas night. And guess what? It's just as true this Christmas morning. We can still miss them. It amazes me that we can sing words like, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn, and still miss what this day is all about. Very rarely do we admit it, but we're all kind of searching for a saviour. I know, like, we live in a um, celebrated, um, secular, progressive, Western, um, secular world. And we hold it up as something that is, is our invention and is our great delight as modern, modern humans. There is currently in play, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the undergirding and what is underlying our secular culture at the moment is um, a promised um, techno-utopia. It's currently in play and it's this understanding and there's this promise that actually says that science and technology, they are going to create and, um, uh, and make the ideal society. 
So right now, as we're sitting in this place, it's been happening for a couple of decades now, there is a new renaissance which is in play that promises to make advances in every single arena of life, whether that be political, social, economical, or cultural. And this promise even goes as far as to arrogantly say that this movement can reach to the depths of even transforming a human heart. That is currently in play. I think one of the greatest things that we've learned about 2020 is that even though this is currently in play, we're actually seeing the fruit of this and we're still left wanting. In fact, I mentioned this on Sunday that the uh, Renaissance actually brought forward and actually provided a formula that we fundamentally believe as modern human people. And the formula says this, freedom plus democracy, you know the light of the world came into the world and there you go. Thanks for helping me out there. Uh, <laughs> but this is what the formula says. And, and see if this isn't true, okay? Like, like, let's use a little bit of our, our, our brain right now. Tell me if this is not true. This is what it says. Freedom plus democracy plus science plus education plus technology equals a millennium of peace and prosperity. Is that not true, what we're actually being told? Right? Problem is, in 2020, the scaffolding of that formula is falling apart. We're seeing right before our eyes that the formula simply does not add up. It's not adding up. 2020 has shown us that it's not adding up. But all of us are looking for some kind of saviour. That's what humans do. Next Saturday, I believe, um, um, there's going to be a lot of um, Australians who are going to be hoping for a certain saviour by buying a ticket. They're going to hope and pray that $30 million, who would like 30 million bucks? You better tie that. If you're going to buy a ticket, you better tie that sucker. <laughs> and then give an offering. <laughs> but, but next Saturday, next Saturday, a lot of people are going to be sort of saying, I need $30 million and I'm hoping and I'm praying that $30 million will save me from a lifeless, boring, pointless existence. Please save me from my life. That's what it's going to be saying. This year, the world's holding out for another saviour. It's called a vaccine, right? Apparently, by the end of next year, we're all going to have a vaccine and we're all going to be good. And, and, and what's hoped by this vaccine is because this year, COVID-19 has come and it's restricted something that is so important to us. Our freedom and our security. They are the two greatest things for us. And COVID-19 came in and all of a sudden, we are caught and we are captured. Well, not in Perth, because as you can see, COVID's safe. Anyway... <laughs> For the rest of the world, it's actually caught, and we're, and we're kind of hoping that a, a vaccine will actually enable us to step back into the freedom which we so desperately want, desire, and yearn for. But after COVID-19 has come and gone, guess what? There's going to be something else. There always is. There's going to be something else that threatens to paralyze and to cripple people. We are... People who live in 2020 and we unashamedly, we shout as being the most educated, most informed and most secure people of all time. You know, most people like to say, I'm too educated to even be a Christian. Really? You're so educated, you go into a cold supermarket and you're fighting over toilet rolls. Are you kidding me? Yeah, you're so educated. And what amazed me with that whole phenomenon is that when another outbreak happened, humans in Australia did exactly the same thing. Is it? Did anyone else find that intriguing? That just lets us know that we're not as sophisticated as what we actually think. I, th I think, some, like seriously, I think that sometimes we can believe certain things about us, but there comes moments where we act certain ways and we do certain things and you take a step back and say, yeah, we're not that sophisticated. We're not as smart as what we think we are. 
peel back the veneer. You don't need to even peel back the veneer of someone else. Take the courage. Have the courage to peel back the veneer of your own heart. And you will find that our hearts are crippled with fear. Human hearts are crippled with fear. Human hearts are imprisoned and held captive by systems of injustice and inordinate affections that render many, many people trapped, unable to live in freedom. And then the Christmas story comes. And the Christmas story confronts us because the Christmas story points to this child in a manger who is a sign. And the sign is this, that the Savior has been born, not a Savior. And the thing that confronts us is that the Savior is not the Savior I want. Well, regardless of if Jesus is the Savior you want or not, it's the Savior you've got and the Savior you need. Because we are not that smart. We are not sophisticated. We are farting in shopping aisles over toilet paper for crying out loud. No, 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 no. That's why it confronts us. This sign points to the Savior. Not just a Savior. The Savior. In the midst of different seasons in our world, who's saying, come here, do this, and you will be saved. You will be secure. You will have your freedom. But this year, all of those other Caesars have been found wanting. All those other Saviors have been found wanting. There is only one Savior. He is the Savior, Jesus. Isn't that good to know? Second thing is the Messiah. The Messiah, the, the verse says this, the Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord. The Messiah, the Lord. C.S. Lewis wrote in the last battle, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. What a great, great observation. The Messiah, Messiah means king. So the Messiah or the anointed king. Now this lets us know something really, really uncomfortable. Come to church on Christmas Day, Dave's going to make us feel really uncomfortable. This is, this is, what, this is what this tells us, okay? This lets us know something that is so uncomfortable about ourselves. None of us can be king. That's what it lets me know. All right? <laughs> there is no one among us as humans, okay, who is strong enough to handle real authority and real power because power corrupts our frail human hearts and then we start hurting people. Is that not true? And if you don't think that's true, just take a casual glance through human history and you'll see over and over and over and over again, evidence is just littered throughout human history that humanity, we are not strong enough to be kings. Because as soon as we get any power, any authority, we are so frail, we are so vulnerable, we are so fragile that we start hurting people instead of causing that strength and that authority to actually cause people to flourish. We go the other way because we're not strong enough. We're not strong enough. So another king is required. And the thing is, we all know we need a king. We all know we need someone to lead. We all know that someone needs to hold the reins. And if none of us are strong enough to hold those reins, well, who is strong enough? See, we need another king. That's the other thing that this story confronts us with because Luke says that the Savior, yes, the king, the Lord, the anointed king, he's been born. It lets us know that um, we need someone else who's going to rule rightly and justly and give voice to those who are vulnerable and live for the forgotten th um, people who live on the fringes of life. What a beautiful king. But quickly, he actually even goes on further from that. And he talks about this king and actually says that this king is from the city of David, which means very little to us, from Bethlehem, the city of David. And this birth of Jesus, the Savior, this king, actually points to God's sovereignty in the affairs of history. When it talks about Bethlehem, it talks about the city of David. 
what Luke and also Matthew and um, what they're pointing to is some um, incredible prophecies. In fact, a prophecy which is um, a 750-year-old prophecy comes from Micah and it says this, Micah 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are, a, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. Jesus' birth, life, death and resurrection, for anyone who takes the time to do any study, actually is the culmination of hundreds and hundreds of prophecies given in Israel's scriptures spanning over hundreds and hundreds of years. And over the years, people have actually looked at that and said, Ah, Jesus, knowing his scriptures, he has orchestrated his life. He has manipulated his life to fulfill all of these prophecies. And I'm kind of thinking, yeah, one or two maybe, but hundreds? Especially if you consider there are some prophecies like this. I mean, if Jesus knew, okay, the, the anointed king, the Messiah is going to go there and going to go there, maybe he could do that. But what's he going to do when he's in Mary's womb? I mean, seriously, is he in Mary's womb kicking and butting and saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> You're in Nazareth right now. You need to get to Bethlehem. I'm supposed to be born. In... It doesn't work. People honestly think that Christianity is this airy-fairy faith. No, it's a reasonable faith. It's far more reasonable than anything else. I challenge you, check it out. If you're honest and courageous enough to dig into Scripture, to dig into the life of Jesus Christ, you will see that this is not a fleeting, airy-fairy faith. This is a reasonable faith and is far more reasonable than any other faith out there. Far more reasonable. How does a baby in a womb make his mom and dad go down here? How does he orchestrate history so that precise time there's a census? No, 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 no. This is letting us know that God's fingers are all over this. That he's had a plan, he's had an agenda far beyond even the historical birth of Jesus Christ. It's letting us know something. The Christmas story goes to great lengths, not just to mention Bethlehem, but to mention that he has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. This is significant because Israel was not just waiting and longing for a king, but the rightful, just king who would be a Davidic Messiah, a Davidic king, someone in the line of David. What God did in human history is that he chose. He chose a weak, inferior people group called Israel. God says to Israel, I didn't choose you because you're strong. I didn't choose you because you're smart. I chose you because I love you and I chose to love you. Exactly the same way that he chooses you. He doesn't choose you because you're smart, because you're intelligent, because you're muscly, because you look good. He chose, you to, he chose to love you because he chose to love you. That's it. That's it. And if you can actually come to terms with that, you're closer to Jesus than what you think. Because no one else is going to love you like that. Who else would say, I'm gonna, this is why I love you, because I love you. Who else is going to say that? No one. What a great day for Christmas. No, he chooses this weak, inferior people group called Israel through which, through which to enter history and to reclaim the world, to set things right, 
to provide an answer to the lingering question that every single one of us, every single human has asked. Even if you haven't articulated it, every single one of us have asked this question. Is this world broken? Have we not asked that question? Even if you haven't articulated it? Well, we all know the answer. God just confirms it. But he goes further than that, you see. Because this is a sign that points to something. No, no. God confirms what we know to be true. But he goes further and he says, and I'm going to take responsibility. This present evil age, it is judged and it will be done away with. And I will make all things new. And that news brings joy. That news brings hope. That news brings peace. But there's still a lingering question. How can we know this is true? To which God gives an obvious answer. I gave you a sign. His finger's pointing. And this will be the sign. A baby in a manger. He's pointing his finger so that we would look and walk in a different direction. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Loved. (laughs) I don't know how Christians get this wrong. You'd honestly think that Scripture says, by the way we live sometimes as followers of Jesus Christ, that God so hated the world. No, no, no. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. What an incredible day. Thomas Merton observed this and he said, Into this world. This demented inn in which there is absolutely no room for him at all, Christ comes uninvited. And even this morning, you may think that your door is absolutely shut. Jesus does not care. He comes uninvited. He loves you so much. He will come uninvited into your life and he will turn it upside down and inside out. He will do a makeover and make things new that you never thought would ever be possible. That's the first Christmas, you see. The first Christmas is a sign that points to something, that he came. Not just he, God came for us to reclaim what is rightfully his and in order to make all things new. Luke 2 verse 12. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Let me pray for you. Thank you, Lord. Father, as we come before you on this beautiful Christmas morning, from this point we're going to go out and we're going to eat and drink and probably sleep. (laughs) But right now in this moment, open our ears and soften our hearts.